Almost 2,000 years ago, Pompeii and Herculeum were two important cities in the Roman Empire. And they were close to Rome itself, about a day uh, a boat ride, so it was a, a great stopping off point and anyone going in and out of Rome. The problem was, however, that the two cities were only 10 miles away from, an, from a volcano. Mount Vesuvius hadn't erupted in over a thousand years, so no one knew that, that that mountain behind them was actually a volcano until one faithful fall afternoon in 79 AD, Vesuvius erupted without any warning. And for the next 36 hours, ash and pumice stone rained down upon the two cities. It covered everything in 20 feet of hot ash. Now, over the centuries, Vesuvius erupted several more times, so it kept on adding more layers of ash to it, so that by the time the the Roman Empire fell, the stories and the legends of these two lost cities disappeared and just ended. There wasn't any record of them anymore. Until 1,500 years later, when an architect was just out wandering and stumbled across some Roman coins while he was digging in a ditch. Even then, it took almost 400 years to be able to go in and start digging and preserving what was there. It was the middle of the 19th century. Now, since uncovering that, there's been a wonderful story of what life was like in the Roman Empire at the time. When Vesuvius blew up, 20,000 people, residents, were able to flee and, and get out of the way. Again, for 12 hours, the ash rained down on everything, but also including the 2,000 people that decided to stay behind and to protect their goods and see if they could stay with the house. When the rains came, guess what? Turned everything to concrete, to cement. It perfectly preserved everything in the last moments of life. Here was an entire civilization frozen in time. They've got taverns, shops, gambling halls, a coliseum that held 20,000 people. And we're talking about a sophisticated culture because they had public baths. They had sewer systems, four-story buildings with indoor plumbing, scrolls of music, Frescoes, paintings, expensive jewelry and furniture, they were all found. But they also found a few other things. They found bread baking in the ovens. They found eggs unopened, unbroken on the table. Money on the countertop. Pots full of meat and food set on the table in in expectation that people were about to come and, and share in it. And even though the the bodies decayed over time, the people who had come in to excavate made plaster casts of what they found. And it's really surrealistic to think about. It's it's really a moment frozen in time. There was a beggar with a new pair of shoes at the front gate. A woman was literally bending over a well hiding their valuables. Another lady was carrying a baby on either side. There were two little girls uh, holding onto her dress, all just turned into stone. 
there was a group of people hiding in a wine cellar with tons of food. They were expecting to wait this out and they never got to eat any of it. A man who was trying to escape the rising ash grabbed onto a tree limb and is now immortalized like this. There was another man lying on the ground uh, beside a, a woman who was seven months pregnant. And he's reaching over and covering her face with his robe to protect her from the ash. These are the people that were killed and frozen in time. Now, in several places, there's also some graffiti, word squares, uh, Roman poetry like Sudoku. And they spell out our father using omega and alpha. And so it demonstrates to us that there was a, a vibrant little Christian community that was there as well. One woman was found next to a wine vault. Hundreds and hundreds of silver dishes. And on one of the dishes, do you know what was inscribed? Enjoy life while you have it, for tomorrow is uncertain. It's almost impossible to conceive that a, a whole civilization is wiped out, almost forgotten, except for what is preserved for us now in these concrete casting molds. Now, lest we think we're smarter than them or we're more developed than them, scientists, many of them, think that we're actually due for another major catastrophe. A supervolcano, a, a rogue asteroid, Perhaps it's going to be a mega earthquake. You know what? I, I, I don't think we would have thought of this, but what about a plague? We are right now living still under the conditions of the COVID restrictions. You know, a year ago, none of us would have thought of a global pandemic. It, it, it's brought what was science fiction into real life for us. And thankfully, despite all of the challenges and the complaints that, that the government has restricted, it could have been very worse. We didn't know when this was going to happen and the outcome. Consider the Black Plague of the 14th century. They estimate <coughs> that 30 to 60% of the population was wiped out. That's one of every two people. So if you're sitting beside someone this morning, one of the two of you died because of the Black Plague. Now, it's at times like this, when we have catastrophes and, and people start asking questions about what's the meaning of life. And I know myself and several others I've talked to in this congregation, people, their neighbors, their friends, their family are saying, if there's a God, why is he allowing this to happen? Now, even beyond that, even the strongest of Christians, many of us are being challenged, well, considering everything... What is the sum of life? If, if I was to, to go into heaven this moment, this afternoon, if God was to call me to glory, everything I've worked for, everything I've lived for, what is life's bottom line? What's left? Well, this was precisely the reason why the book of Ecclesiastes was written for us. So over the next few months, I, I hope that we're going to find that this is really a book of delight. It's not what it appears to be. If you look at it very quickly and start glancing through it, it looks pessimistic. It looks gloomy. It looks negative. But there is a reason for the approach that the author has taken here, what God has done. 
for all of us who are seeking eternal answers, spiritual answers, this is a book of great hope. This is a book of ultimate answers. This is a book that is not only God-centered, but I'm going to challenge you over the next several months, is actually Christ-focused. It points us to Christ. It's a book that serves up tender morsels of spirituality, divine wisdom for the hungry soul. It's a book that is timeless because of that. Now, we're going to start looking this morning at verses 1 through 3. Just those three verses because it really sets the, the tone for the rest of the book. And before we go much farther, I just want to say that over the three to four months that we're going to be looking here, I've tried dividing up the scriptures into bite-sized pieces. Now, there's a challenge here because the, the author is using all kinds of Hebrew poetry and is just filled with parables. One section we look at could have 15 or 20 parables that look at a reality from different directions. So I'm going to encourage you that I'm going to announce what the scriptures are for the coming week. And I, I hope that you would take the time to read and to meditate upon them so that as you've come, you're thinking about what's in the text already. Because as I come, I'm going to try bringing all of these threads together and preaching Christ. But the reality is, is because of the complexity of the format and the genre, it's much easier if you have already just meditated and prayed over these scriptures. So next week, next week is verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1, okay? Verses 3 through 11. Now, very specifically, I, I want us to understand, we're going to learn that there are two words and one phrase that come in the first three verses that are super important for understanding everything that follows in the, in the rest of the book. Two words and one phrase, and they govern everything that follows. So let's turn to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 3 in the ESV or English Standard Version. Now, if you have never had to look for uh, Ecclesiastes before, take your Bible open it up halfway, you should be in the Psalms. Go two books more to the right, and you'll go through Proverbs, and then the second one's Ecclesiastes. Pretty easy to find, right? Middle of the Bible, and then two books over. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Amen. Well, as every book in, in the Bible, the opening sentences give us a context, they give us direction for the writer. And, and you notice right off the bat, we're told that these are the words of the preacher. And some of the versions of the Bible, if you have an older version, it'll actually say koaleth. Now, the word preacher is just what you would expect, and you're just what you're looking at. It's someone who stands before the assembly, before the people of God, and speaks on behalf of God. And in case you're wondering where we get this weird name Ecclesiastes from in the English, well, it's actually the Greek word for preacher that's translated in the, in, the, in the Old Testament Septuagint. So this is where Ecclesiastes comes from. It comes from the Greek word ecclesia, 
or the gathering of God's people. Now, over the centuries, the evangelical church has not had a clear uh, decision on how to understand this. Uh, Several people, key people, important uh, preachers and and, uh, people of the Word of God have said that the actual author of, of Ecclesiastes is a ghostwriter. He's taken on the persona of Solomon. He's probably started with some manuscript of Solomon's, and then he's filled it all in. And it may sound strange, but this was a, a practice, a common practice in the ancient world. And so we could say that God is using the normal common means to communicate at the time. They would look at things in the text and they would say, for example, there's too many Phoenician words, too many Persian idioms, countries or kingdoms that existed hundreds of years after Solomon. They would say, well, there's certain words in there that the nuance of the meaning, they don't exist in the rest of of what we know was written at the same time. Or they'd say, well, you can look at the, the change in the person. So at the beginning of Ecclesiastes and at the end, that we have someone who is speaking to us of the first person. I, I. But in the middle it gets fuzzy and it sounds like it's he. So if this was true, it would mean that Ecclesiastes was actually written around 400 B.C., so 500 years after Solomon himself, which would put it in the middle of Israel's exile for sin. Now many others, including myself, would say, This is actually Solomon. And we would look at verses 1 and 12 where it says very clearly, doesn't it? Son of David, king in Jerusalem. We look at verse 16 of chapter 1 and it says, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing anyone before me. Who could that be other than Solomon? So while there may be some questions about how everything has been brought together by the Holy Spirit, I look at this and I say this is clearly Solomon's word preserved by the Holy Spirit. And if this is the case, this would mean Ecclesiastes was written probably on his deathbed, probably in the last days of his life. He's looking back on everything that's happened, and he's recounting the errors of his ways, he's reviewing it, too many wives, his idolatry, his great accumulation of wealth, all of the things that took his heart, even with a, as a man of wisdom, that stole his heart and led him into sin. I've shared a little bit about my grandpa Breer, 96, when he finally passed away. We would go and visit him in the senior's home. It was perched on top of a kind of a precipice or a, a lookout in Perry Sound looking over Georgian Bay. We'd go there and visit And here was a man who didn't have much strength left. But you know that he had lived through two world wars. He had lived through the Great Depression of 1929 and lost everything. In fact, he he never trusted banks and kept their life savings even up until he died in the outhouse buried deep. (laughs) He lost a brother when he was young. He outlived two of his children. He outlived his wife. He outlived the influenza epidemic of 1918, which all of this COVID stuff just kind of brings to memory. And I remember going to visit him several times, and he would be just sitting on his bed or in a chair, and he'd have a chew of tobacco, and he'd just be chewing it 
looking out the window for hours. And I can't think of anything, but what was my life? 96 years looking out over this beautiful bay and all of the things that he has faced in his life. If this was written by Solomon at the end of his age, this would mean that Israel is in the golden age of, its, of the kingdom. The undisputed powers were the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Babylonians. But you know what? Israel was at the height of its influence. Israel was at the height of its wealth and wisdom. And the world beat a path there. We just got to go to 1 Kings chapter 10, and we've seen the Queen of Sheba coming to get wisdom from Solomon. So this was the height of influence and wisdom in Israel. Now, either way, whether it's an early date or a later date, Ecclesiastes has been preserved for us because it's God's wisdom for life in a wicked and fallen world. In a world that's messy, upside down, confusing, in a world that's elusive, that's out of control, that often just feels chaotic. In a world that is just full of repetition, day after day, doing the same thing. Here's the ultimate answer that the preacher says. Apart from God, there is no gain to anything of our toil. Let me say that again. Apart from God, there is no gain to any of our toil. Today, we live in a world of information, but truth is subjective, isn't it? And we live in a time when uh, there is an unlimited seeking after power of wealth, of riches, of wisdom. But you know what? For all of our searching, for all of our power, for all of our money, we haven't learned a hill of beans more than we do before. (laughs) Meaning is still elusive. Never have we had so much personal freedom. Never have we had the ability to have so much personal resources and knowledge at our disposal. And yet, we still come up empty with the very basic questions of life. For all our searching, this world is just as messed up, just as messy, just as upside down, and just as confusing as when we started. And it's a world of endless routines, isn't it? Day in and day out. There's a monotony of life. Now, I've shared, I think, a little bit about Dad Hater, Shauna's father. We would sit down whenever we visited up there, and he'd, after dinner, push the chair away, and he'd say, We ate again. It sounds funny. And especially as, as a 20 or 30-something, I thought, this is just weird. It's, it's cute, but it's, it's, it's different. But I'm now getting a little bit of a perspective on that. Think of it this way. The average lifespan is 82 years. That means that each one of us will have eaten 89,790 meals. And there's only so many things you can eat. There's only so many things to to, to ways to prepare that. I remember when Sean and I were first married, you know, we'd come home and, and everything is just amazing. You'd want to do supper together. And you'd be in the kitchen and you'd be helping and you'd make these wonderful plans. I remember making jambalaya for a long time. We got into all these wonderful recipes. You know what? After 30 years, 
10,950 suppers? Neither of us want to be in that kitchen making supper every day. <laughs> and, and yet, guess what the number one question is by the noontime? What are we going to do about supper? Because you have to start thinking. You have to start preparing it day in, day out. It's amazing to think, Dad Hater, we ate again, and yet how true that really is. Life is an unending series of endless routines. Getting up in the morning, shaving, going to work, cleaning, cooking, look at, looking after the kids, uh, trying to find a couple minutes of rest time in the, in, the, in the evening, going to sleep, getting up again, and doing it day after day after day. Life is also really impossible for us to comprehend, isn't it? No matter how hard we try, we just can't comprehend, we can't quantify it, we can't control it in any way. But here's the thing. We're going to start learning that with God at the center of our existence, life does have meaning even in a world of vanity or futility. Specifically, faith in God gives life meaning. Now, these verses that we've opened up with, some of them, people will consider them some of the most depressing verses of the whole Bible. Verse 2 and 3 again. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? You notice the the repeat of that word vanity in verse 2. Five times. So this is the first word that we really need to understand for the whole book. The word in the original is hevel. And it has several meanings. But we just need to know that it's five times in verse 2. That tells us something. Because in the Old Testament, there is an economy of words. There are so many words that are used only once that when you start learning the original languages, it's really hard to get into Hebrew. But here we have the same word five times in one sentence. Now, the word havel is often translated in English as meaningless. But that's a poor translation. It's better to understand even vanity, but vanity as we use it is not even close to what God's talking about here. So Hevel, again, this is important because it exists 38 times throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It means a vapor. Life is a vapor. It is a breath. It is a wisp of air. And it has two real meanings behind it, nuances that will come back time and time again. The first one is that life is a vapor. I love going out on a cold winter day. And I'm sure everyone, when you know it's really cold, you stand there and you... and you see the the crystals come out, right? And you're looking at them. But here's the thing. They hang there for only the briefest of seconds before they dissipate. And that's what the author's telling us, the preacher's telling us. Life is a vapor. It's transcendent, it's, it's ephemeral, it's so momentary. 
It's like that breath that comes out in the cold morning. Now, I'm sure that you've experienced this to some degree, each and every one of us. You start high school. Next thing, you're in university. You turn around, you're married. A couple years later, you've got kids. Then you're retiring, and you're wondering, what happened to my life? If you're younger, you think much the same way. You start grade 9, and now you're into starting university this September. Where have those four years gone? You have memories of them, but it was a wisp. And it gets even faster as we get older. I, I look at our time in Chile. Ten years. An amazing ten years. I've got wonderful memories, and yet my memory fails me because it was just a wisp. We've been married 30 years. I don't know where the time's gone. I, I look at our, our girls. I'm thinking, they're almost out of the house. We're almost empty nesters. I remember carrying them as babies, trying to get them to sleep at night. Where has the time gone? Well, that, that's the first meaning of Havel. It, it, and this is the reality, is that life gives the impression of being something substantial, of something important. But in reality, it's only an illusion. Life is insubstantial. It's fleeting. It's transitory. It's ephemeral. Again, just like that breath out on a cold winter morning. It's there for just a brief second, and then it's gone. And this may be really hard for some of the younger people to understand. And it becomes important, as we're going to look at a little bit later, when we look at the causes and, and the things that we need to stand for uh, as, as people of God, what it really means. The second meaning of Hevel, or uh, of this vanity, is that life is elusive. We can try to understand it. We can try to grasp it. We all want to try to understand by physically touching and getting a hold of it, don't we? We want to control it, manipulate it. But no matter how much we try, it resists our ability to do so. The world around us looks to be predictable. There's laws of nature. It looks like we can understand it to some degree. So we study it. We dissect it. And yet, it's beyond our ability to truly understand. And we never get to the bottom of what's going on, right? I was thinking yesterday of, of the history of some of the sciences that are going on. It was a hundred years ago that people were wowed by atoms. And that was the forefront of everything. Then came quarks. Then came the Higgs boson, what they called the God particle. That was supposed to be the, the foundation building block of all things. And then in 2014, they've come out and said, no, there's this another thing we've been able to uh, identify, but we can't really quantify yet. And, and the reality is, it, it, life is like that. Every time we think we're getting to a better understanding, getting to a better control things, it, it's just elusive. We're never truly there. Life resists all our attempts to define it, to sum it up. And because it's impossible to predict with any certainty the outcome, this is important to think about. Because life is, it's, Im it's impossible to know with any certainty the lasting uh, of the outcome of any, any human activity 
will not have any significant lasting impact. Does that make sense? If life is, uncha- if life is always changing, if it is always beyond our grasp, no matter what happens in the light of eternity, none of our actions will change anything or make anything more important. And that's hard to understand. That's hard to grasp because we want to control things. Uh, think of it like footprints on the sand. You, you've been to the beach. You walk down the beach, and only a couple feet later, just the gentlest of, of waves come in, and it just washes your footprint away. Life is like that. No matter what we try to do to change things, the reality is that we will never make a lasting impact eternally. And that's challenging to think about. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that we do is intrinsically meaningless, because the preacher's going to tell us several things throughout the book that have meaning. For example, we are to seek wisdom and not folly. We're to seek justice and not injustice. But what it means is that anything that we choose to do, anything that we think is important, is just like the footprints in the sand. We can throw all of our resources, all of our energy, all of our life behind something, and yet <coughs> it will not mean anything from an eternal perspective. Any attempts to impose ourselves, to control it, to change the outcome or the reality is foolishness on our part. And this applies to all life. All of life. Verse 2 says what? Notice the words vanity of vanity. All is vanity. Everything? Yes. Everything. Now, if we stop here, this truly would be a depressing, pessimistic book, wouldn't it? Believe it or not, these are the exact words, the, the, the phrase, uh, sorry, the, the part of the Bible that uh, encouraged existentialism under Soren Kierkegaard under Jean-Paul Sartre, and uh, under what we would call now as postmodernism, that the philosophy that there is meaninglessness in, lo- in life except for the uh, instant that you find yourself now. Life is meaningless. They, they read these. In fact, Soren Kierkegaard came from a Christian family, and he became the founder of existentialism. And we need to understand that the preacher does give us hope. Even in these opening sentences, look at verse 3. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Do you see the hope there? Do you see any hope? Well, here is a phrase under the sun. So we've had our two words. This is the phrase now that we need to understand that will help us determine the rest of this book. Because it's an ancient expression that means from the position of where I stand right now, life on earth is meaningless. In other words, life from the horizontal perspective, if we never look up to God, then yes, it is meaningless, it is vanity. If we always just simply look at the things around us, we will live a miserable, destitute, empty, and meaningless life. But if we have faith in God, 
we can start to understand that there is meaning in life, even in the atrocities of the world. We can start seeing the beauty that is there even amongst the thorns. We can start to see there is meaning in dissonance. I, I remember years ago, <coughs> I went to a, a symphony here in Toronto, and I'm waiting for this wonderful uh, overture that, that comes up later. But for the first 15 minutes or so, what do they do? Everyone is, is trying to get their instruments tuned. And it sounds like dissidence. It sounds like it's all kinds of noise and raucous. And yet, if you listen closely, there are similar tunes or similar notes being done by different instruments. And so there is a harmony there. And as we start to, to seek after God, a as we have that relationship with him, we start to find meaning in the dissonance of life. Because we're focused on him. We're not looking at the horizontal plane. We're looking upwards. So what the preacher says here, and he was going to say over and over and over again, life without God is vain. And he brings this home in verse 3 with this rhetorical question. You know, what's the sum of all things? Nothing. If you're to add up your toil, your sweat, your life, is there any profit? And the resounding answer is no. There's no profit. Now, here's the second word that we need to understand. It's yitron. Y-I-T-R-O-N. It's the second great word that is going to determine the meaning of the rest of the book. And for all of you people who are accountants today, this is your word, yitron. <laughs> because it's an ancient word that actually means the transactions of all things. So imagine an expense account, and you've got all your pluses and your minuses, and, and you're adding up all of these transactions. What is the bottom sum of all things? What's the balance sheet of life? Again, the answer is, apart from God, there is no bottom line, no meaning to life. Now, now that should bring up the question, well, why would God write and preserve what appears to be a very pessimistic, depressing book to read. I, I don't know too many young people who open up the book of Ecclesiastes and go, I'm going to start reading there today, but you know what? I know so many people who find it one of the most comforting books in the Bible as you get older. Why would God preserve it? Because it tells us the reality of the world around us. There's no... Uh, uh, punches left here, no hold, bars hold, and, and he wants us to look to him. He says, I understand what the world is. He takes this veil off and he says, this is the ugly truth of reality, but look to me and there's meaning. So God's desire is that we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that we're to put our faith in the everlasting God, the one who is above all things, who transcends under the sun. We look to him and we're okay. Only in him is there meaning and profit. And so again, he, he removes this veil, the reality of this fallen world, so that we see the starkness, the bleakness of it. And it directs us to his glory. 
We understand as, as we see these things that while there's trinkets and baubles in this world that would desire us to, to, to reach out and to grab them, we could spend our lifetime and all our resources on them, but they will not increase or help our lives. It is only God. Nothing that shines or dazzles in the world will give us any spiritual gain here on earth. We must desire after and live for God. That's the only way that there is meaning in this world. Now there's nothing, there's none of us, who will ever find lasting meaning in our work, in our family, unless we look to God. All of our searching, if we're only looking at the horizontal, will only ever send us on this insatiable desire to, to look for more because it never satisfies the soul. And so it'll be this insatiable desire for more, digging for more answers, more information, more knowledge, more wealth, but it always ends in hopelessness. If we can grasp this understanding, it will draw us not only closer to God, but closer to Christ, to Jesus. Why? Because Romans 8.20 tells us that the whole of creation was subjected to fertility because of our sin. This word in Romans 8, futility, translated in, again, in the Septuagint, in the, in the Greek Old Testament, is the same word that we're looking at right now in Ecclesiastes. It's hevel. So the world was subjected to vanity and meaningless, a transitory frustration of endless futility because of our sin. God permits us to see that, to see the ugliness behind it, because we don't always necessarily see our sin, but the repetition and the vanity of life can just weighs upon us after, after time, and it draws us unto God. This was never God's plan for creation. This was never God's plan for us. But due to sin, our rejection of God's sovereignty, our rejection of His holiness, His righteousness, it, it, this creation has fallen under the curse, under the penalty of death. It has been made subject to frustration, and pointlessness. But that doesn't stop there. Our, our troubles go even farther. They're compounded even worse because not only does sin separate us from God, <coughs> but it continues to obscure our understanding of, of what's good, of what's right, and what's meaningful in this world. It, it warps our perception, our vision of what is real and eternal. Now, I've started using reading glasses all the time, and, and Shauna has too. So on the main floor, we probably have four or five different pairs of reading glasses so that there's always a pair somewhere handy. The problem is these are now prescription. And so if I go to grab hers, I, I can't use them. <laughs> I'll put them on, but that is a perception and a reality. I'm looking through glasses that don't tell me the truth. And that's what this vanity is. Sin has brought this upon us. We can't look at anything in this world or do anything that brings meaning to life or glory to God until we first know Christ as our Lord and Savior. So instead of living 
to worship and glorify God our Creator, we seek to satisfy our own self, our own insatiable desire for more information, more riches. And it's precisely because of this that the book of Ecclesiastes has been preserved for us by the Holy Spirit. There's a, a brutal honesty as, as we're going to go through it. it. It will reveal some things that will be tough and challenging, especially for younger people. But the reality is, if we look only from this plane, yes, there is hopelessness. But if we look towards God, there is hope. There is beauty. Now, praise God, we're not left in this hopelessness, are we? We're not left in this world in which there is all vanity. Jesus Christ suffered the penalty for us. He, he paid the, the curse that was ours. In all of its futility, he died on the cross and was made sin for us. And here's the interesting thing. It's by the power of his resurrection that Romans 8.21 proclaims that creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Because he died for us, because that futility in this creation is a result of our sin, there is going to be a, a new creation. And we see that in Revelation 22, don't we? We have there pictured for us our eternal hope. There is a river of life. There is no longer any death, no more curse of futility. There's a new heaven, a new earth. The throne of God and the Lamb is in the midst, and we are servants who are worshiping God forever. Now, Proverbs 1, verse 7, says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes goes one step farther. He says, our very goal or end of our existence. Let's go to chapter 12, verse 13. This is kind of the summation of everything. Chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So in, in Proverbs, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but he says here, this is our ultimate destiny here on this earth. Our goal is our existence is what? to fear God and to keep his commandments. Now, I, I don't know where you are this morning. I'm sure with COVID, though, you're, you're struggling in different aspects of your life. Do you, do you feel that? Are, are you struggling in a real way? Are, are you dealing with the meaninglessness of life, the repetition of things going on? Is your soul thirsting for something other than what you see around? Because it's, it's never been placated. It's never been sated <coughs> by the things of the world. I, are you tired of that repetition? Then I would say, you need to seek God this morning. Uh, take a moment. If Yitron is this idea of adding up all things, take a moment. Add up everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done. Now wipe it. Just rip it up and take it away. The preacher says it was all vanity unless you have faith in God. Do you have faith in God? 
Do you have faith specifically in Jesus Christ? That he died for your sin as a sacrifice for atonement on your behalf. And if that's the case, if you feel compelled and a need this morning to cry out to God, I, I ask them, just pray, encourage you to do that even now. That you would cry out to God and, and just say, I, I, I feel the vanity and the meaningless, the futility of life. And I understand that there is only hope in you. Help me, Lord God. Forgive me, a sinner. To, to us who have faith, it doesn't mean that life is going to be magically changed. There's still going to be repetition. There's still going to be meaninglessness at times. But it does mean that there is always meaning if we're looking to God, if we're trusting God, if we're following Him, if we're leaning into this grace. No matter what the situation may be going on, if we look above what is under the sun unto God, there is life, there is meaning. Matthew 12, 48 says this, that one greater than Solomon has come, that is Jesus Christ. So everything that we're going to be looking at, everything that, that leads us to the glory of God and the vanity of life, one greater than Solomon has come, Jesus Christ. And we need a personal relationship with him to find meaning. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We don't understand how and why at times things happen. We're, your wisdom is far deeper than we could ever imagine. Your ways are inscrutable. But Lord, understanding that the purpose for which creation was put under a curse is so that we would feel the weight of that in our daily life, that we would <coughs> not forget that we are but creatures. We are not gods. We are not masters of our own destiny. We are people under a curse. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ died for us. And, and I pray that if there are any here this morning who do not yet know you, that you would continue to impress the beauty of Jesus Christ upon them, the wonder that is the cross, that he died for our sins. A and we thank you that there is meaning in life despite COVID, despite death, despite all of the horrid realities of the world around us, we can look to Christ and have life. In Jesus' name, amen.